Welcome to Plato's Projects with James Graff, where we pursue Plato's projects of developing adequate theories of the good and the true in conversation with academic philosophy, but also with academia in general. Socrates believed that no one is deprived of knowledge willingly. We all want not merely to believe, but also to know. But what is it that we seek to know? Obviously, it is the truth that we seek to know. For whatever our goals, knowledge helps us attain them. But what is knowledge? What, for that matter, is truth? For over 2,300 years, philosophy has been seeking answers to these questions. Philosophers who study these questions are called epistemologists, after the Greek word episteme, knowledge, and their philosophical discipline is epistemology. So, is it possible to answer humanity's most basic questions about the nature of knowledge and how to get it? In this first 10-episode series, I share the 10 chapters of my own book, Knowledge by Acceptance, 2nd Edition. This book presents a novel analysis of knowledge, a list of conditions that, when met, indicate that a person knows something, rather than merely believing it. The no-unacceptable-element analysis of knowledge it proposes overcomes the problems that have plagued such theories to date, known as the Gettier problems. But it goes beyond this solution to make the analysis of knowledge truly practical for everyday use by human beings, rather than merely usable within idealized thought experiments in which the truth of the matter has been predetermined. Owing to time constraints, I have used a synthesized voice, the best I have ever found, in fact, to read the text. This best voice happens to be female. In addition, I have not been able to shape the text in detail as I normally would. As a result, it will sometimes read a word incorrectly. If you hear a word that doesn't sound quite right, please imagine the word on the written page to figure out what was written. Of course, the best thing to do to truly understand everything is to buy the book, which is available on Amazon in ebook and paperback formats. More information about the book and about myself can be found on my website, jamesgraff.org, and that's graph spelled G-R-A-F. I hope you enjoy the reading. Knowledge by Acceptance, Second Edition By James Graff Copyright 2019 James Graff All Rights Reserved Chapter 5, Belief, Propositions, and Justification If we are to understand the traditional analysis of knowledge, the TAC, we will need to understand the key concepts it employs. We will need to understand belief, justification, and truth. We will therefore explore each of these concepts in turn. It is only after this that we will be able to go back to looking at the tack as a whole, to ask whether the tack is good enough as an analysis of knowledge or whether it needs to be revised. At this point you may wonder, what if we end up rejecting the tack, and beyond that, find that one of the problems with it is that one or more of these central three concepts it deploys is illegitimate. 
I raise this question because many epistemologists have challenged the legitimacy of the concept of justification in recent decades, suggesting it be replaced by some other concept, such as warrant or a causal relationship. Wouldn't that mean that some of our time here would feel like it had been a waste? Allow me to alleviate such a concern. To jump ahead for a moment, we will indeed find the tack to be problematic, and find ourselves, within the present book, rejecting it in favor of a new analysis of knowledge that will withstand our critique. However, as it will turn out, comprehending these same three concepts, belief, justification, and truth, will prove pivotal to understanding the analysis of knowledge we will have settled on, and through that pivotal to our overall project of comprehending knowledge. As a result, none of our effort in this and the next chapter will have been wasted. The present chapter explores the concepts of belief and justification, and the subsequent chapter explores the concept of truth. The present chapter's exploration of the concept of belief will also provoke an exploration of the concept of a proposition, since we will identify this as the kind of thing that can be believed. 5.1 Belief According to the traditional analysis of knowledge, for a subject person to know a proposition it is necessary that they believe it. But what does it mean to believe a proposition? And what indeed do we mean by a proposition? In order to elucidate the concept of belief, let us first step back from the technical and as yet unelucidated concept of a proposition and return to more everyday language. For the purposes of our project I don't see any need to analyze belief much beyond our everyday intuitions about it. I believe a deeper analysis of belief to be beyond the scope of philosophy and into the scope of empirical sciences like neuroscience, and I don't know of any empirical evidence that undermines these everyday intuitions. I am not the only one who feels this way, of the three central concepts this and the next chapter will elucidate, i.e. belief, justification, and truth, epistemologists generally can be judged to have, by their allocations of attention, perceived belief to be the one least in need of deep philosophical analysis. However, it will be useful to this book series project to relate the concept of belief to some similar concepts. When we speak of belief in this context, we are speaking of an attitude one takes towards something regarding its veracity, i.e. its truth or falsity. As a prominent philosopher of the theory of knowledge has said, to believe something is to accept it as true. Belief is the attitude that something is true. But when presented with an idea of the kind a person might believe, belief is not the only attitude towards its veracity one might adopt. A second attitude one might adopt is to disbelieve it. To disbelieve something is to believe that it is false. Finally, a third attitude one might adopt is to suspend judgment about its veracity, in which one would say, I don't know whether it's true or false. Suspending judgment is the appropriate attitude when one's evidence is inconclusive. But when is one's evidence inconclusive? I'll suggest three situations in which one's evidence would be inconclusive about the potential belief. One's evidence concerning that which is in question is inconclusive in the following situations. 1. One's evidence provides no support for either true or false. 2. One's evidence provides as much support for it being true as for it being false. 3. One's evidence provides more support either for it being true or for it being false 
but the margin by which one of these options is more strongly supported is so small that one does not feel sufficiently confident to conclude that it is so. In any of these three situations, one's evidence is inconclusive and so it would be appropriate to suspend judgment about the veracity of that which is in question. Already we see that belief is just one possible attitude one can take concerning the veracity of that which is in question, alongside disbelief and suspension of judgment. But surely it is not as simple as this. Beyond simply believing, disbelieving, or suspending judgment, we often find ourselves expressing belief or disbelief in different degrees. For example, I might believe with very high confidence, saying, I'm quite certain, that Ringo Starr was the last member to join the Beatles. I might believe with less confidence, saying, I'm pretty sure, that the name of their previous drummer, whom Ringo was hired to replace, was Pete Best. So far, I've been speaking as though the only options are to believe that it's true or false or to suspend judgment about it, which, respectively, correspond to 100% belief, 100% disbelief, and no belief about its veracity either way. But now I'm showing that in reality, we can also have a graded attitude towards something in which we have a certain degree of belief. The notion of degrees of belief will be useful later in the book series when we discuss how information about a speaker should affect our degree of belief in what they claim to be the case, that is, our degree of belief in their testimony. But for now, our discussion won't require that much nuance, in fact, most of the time, we likely won't even need to mention suspension of judgment in the list of possible attitudes. For now, I'll generally only list belief and disbelief as the relevant alternatives for simplicity's sake. In this discussion of belief, I have been using various clumsy phrases to refer to the kind of thing that can be believed. But how could one say one understands the concept of belief unless one understood what kind of thing it is that can be believed? It would be like saying one understands fishing because one knows all about fishing gear and methods, without knowing what a fish is, the things that all that gear and those methods have as their object. So what kind of thing is that which is in question, this potential belief, which analyses of knowledge, like the tack, say can also under certain circumstances be known by someone? Earlier in the book, I examined the different senses of the words know, knowledge, etc., and I applied the label propositional to the kind of knowledge we humans are referring to when we speak of someone knowing that something is the case. I then concluded that propositional knowledge was the kind of knowledge we are interested in within this book series. I promised I would later explain exactly what a proposition is. Now is the time to deliver on that promise. 5.2 Propositions What kind of thing can be believed? In other words, what kind of thing can be the object of someone's attitude of belief? I think the belief condition of the tack is the one most difficult to challenge. It feels obvious to me that if a person knows something, they must believe it. Therefore, the kind of thing that is the object of belief is also the object of knowledge. Whatever the kind of thing it is that can be known, must also be the kind of thing that can be believed, since one must first believe something if one is to know it. Earlier, when I was exploring how we humans use the word know in the knowing that sense, I gave an example sentence, all my students know that J.R.R. Tolkien wrote The Hobbit. Let's modify this sentence to refer to belief rather than knowledge. 
All my students believe that J.R.R. Tolkien wrote The Hobbit. In this sentence, that which is believed seems to be the smaller sentence, J.R.R. Tolkien wrote The Hobbit. It seems that the kind of thing that is believed is a sentence. But what kind of sentence is it? 5.2.1 Declarative, Imperative, and Interrogative Sentences Is it any kind of sentence that can be believed, or only certain kinds? Consider these sentences, the first of which is similar to the one we have just approved as of the type that could be believed. 1. J.R.R. Tolkien was an author. 2. Go to the store and buy bread. 3. Where is your brother? The first sentence is a declaration. It declares about its grammatical subject that something is the case. Specifically, this one declares about J.R.R. Tolkien that he was an author, just as the similar example sentence in the previous paragraph declared that he wrote The Hobbit. Philosophers call such sentences declarative sentences. If I have evidence that tells me J.R.R. Tolkien was an author, if, for example, I own several of his books and a renowned biography of the man that outlines his career as an author, then I might just believe the declarative sentence J.R.R. Tolkien was an author. Thus, under the right circumstances, it is possible to believe a declarative sentence. The second example, go to the store and buy bread, is also a sentence, but it is of a different type. It does not declare something to be the case, but rather, in it, a speaker commands the intended hearer to do something, usually with the purpose of causing something to be the case in the future. Specifically, in this sentence, the speaker is commanding the intended hearer to go to the store and buy bread. Our example does not declare the state of affairs, we have all the bread I want us to have, to be the case, but rather is uttered precisely because it is not the case, and the speaker wants to change that, wants to make it the case in the future. Philosophers call such sentences imperative sentences. Is it possible to believe an imperative sentence? Can we imagine any situation in which someone believes, go to the store and buy bread? No, this simply does not make sense. One might believe related sentences such as, I really should go to the store and buy bread, or even, I must go to the store and buy bread, which are both declarative sentences, but one cannot believe the imperative sentence, go to the store and buy bread. A person can issue an imperative sentence as a command, but one cannot believe such a sentence. The third example, where is your brother, is, again, a sentence. This sentence asks a question, philosophers call such sentences interrogative sentences. How are interrogative sentences different from declarative and imperative sentences? Like a declarative sentence, an interrogative sentence pertains to a state of affairs, in this case, to the location of the hearer's brother. But rather than expressing a declaration by the speaker about that state of affairs, it expresses the speaker's desire for the hearer to make a declaration about that state of affairs. Its form is not that of declaring information, but rather soliciting information. It is therefore not a declarative sentence. How are interrogative sentences different from imperative sentences? Like the imperative sentence, go to the store and buy bread, the interrogative sentence, where is your brother, certainly does express the speaker's desire to elicit a response from the hearer. But unlike an interrogative sentence, an imperative sentence carries the implication that the speaker has authority to direct the hearer's action. 
In addition, the kind of response sought by an interrogative sentence is always, at least when meant literally, for the hearer to provide information. In contrast, an imperative sentence can seek from the hearer any type of action, including but not limited to the provision of information. Our earlier imperative sentence, go to the store and buy bread, seeks to elicit from the hearer a physical action, i.e. they're going to the store and buying bread, not a speech act that provides information. If the same speaker first seeks to elicit from the hearer the location of the hearer's brother, the speaker can certainly use another imperative sentence, tell me where your brother is, but this is different from the interrogative sentence, where is your brother? The former, the imperative sentence, carries the implication that the speaker has the right to receive the information from the hearer, and that the hearer has an obligation to provide it, whereas the latter, the interrogative sentence, carries no such implication. Is it possible to believe an interrogative sentence? Can we imagine any situation in which someone believes, where is your brother? No, this simply does not make sense. One might believe related sentences such as, you know where your brother is, or my brother is in Los Angeles, which are both declarative sentences, but one cannot believe the interrogative sentence, where is your brother? One can pose an interrogative sentence as a question, but one cannot believe such a sentence. Of the three types of sentences above, declarative, imperative, and interrogative, the only type whose instances can ever be believed is the declarative type. Further, if we were to look for other types of sentences as well, we would find that there are no others whose instances are the possible objects of belief. This is because, as we said earlier, to believe something is to accept it as true. When one expresses in a sentence that which one accepts as true, one is making a declaration of what is true. The only type of sentence appropriate for expressing a belief, therefore, is a declarative sentence. I will take this argument as sufficient, and conclude that only declarative sentences can be the objects of belief. 5.2.2 Believing the same thing using different sentences We have concluded that declarative sentences, and only declarative sentences, can be the objects of belief. But can a sentence of any kind really ever be believed? We have spoken that way in the preceding discussion, but a problem with that notion arises when we notice that we say that two unilingual speakers of different languages can believe the same thing, and thus agree, even though they use completely different sentences to express that belief. How can they believe the same thing, if it is the different sentences that they believe? If we are correct in saying they believe the same thing, then this same thing that they both believe or even know cannot be a sentence but must be something else. An example will help. Gabriela was raised in Mexico and speaks only Spanish. She believes that the capital of Mexico is Mexico City. Of course, she expresses this belief using a Spanish sentence. Meanwhile, Tracy was raised in the United States and speaks only English. She also believes that the capital of Mexico is Mexico City, and naturally expresses this belief using an English sentence. In everyday speech, we would say of Gabriella and Tracy, they believe the same thing, even though they use two different sentences to express what it is they believe. If that saying is correct, if they indeed do believe the same thing, then that common thing that they believe must not be a sentence, since there is no common sentence involved. Rather, the common thing they believe must be some kind of idea or thought, 
the common meaning of both sentences. After all, a sentence is just a set of words. Until you understand the meaning of those words, placed together in that sentence, it just isn't the kind of thing one can believe or disbelieve, it's simply a string of words. Since Gabriela speaks only Spanish and Tracy only English, if Gabriela wrote down, in a Spanish sentence, her belief about the capital of Mexico, and Tracy saw that sentence, Tracy could not tell whether she believed it. She would have no attitude toward it at all, since it would be meaningless to her. Until she could get past the sentence and discover its meaning, it would not be a possible object for her belief or disbelief, or indeed even for her suspension of judgment concerning its veracity. This prompts the question, what kind of idea or thought, precisely, is that thing which both Gabriella and Tracy believe? Philosophers use the term proposition to refer to the kind of idea or thought that is believed by both Gabriella and Tracy. This, in turn, prompts the question, what precisely is a proposition? 5.2.3 What is a proposition? In order to better define what a proposition is, our example from above will again be of use. First of all, if we're going to call what Gabriella and Tracy believe a proposition, then one property of propositions is immediately obvious, they must be the objects of belief, they must be the kind of thing which a person can believe. Of course, if propositions can be believed then they can also be disbelieved, or be the objects of the other, subtler, belief-related attitudes discussed earlier. Philosophers sum this up by saying propositions are the objects of belief-related attitudes. We discover the second property of propositions when we can ask a question regarding our example, regardless of whether Gabriela and Tracy believe the proposition that Mexico City is the capital of Mexico, is it true? In this case, the answer is yes. But clearly not all propositions are true. The sentence, Acapulco is the capital of Mexico, also expresses a proposition, something which someone could in theory believe, but this proposition is false. This is why philosophers say that propositions are bearers of truth or falsity. They are things that can be true or false. It is the truth or falsity of a proposition that makes belief regarding it correct or incorrect, at least in one important sense. In an important sense, the correct attitude to take toward the proposition expressed by the sentence, Mexico City is the capital of Mexico, is belief, since it is true. Third and finally, our example noted that there were sentences involved in Gabriella and Tracy's shared belief. This prompts the question, what is the relationship between a sentence and a proposition? Can any kind of sentence correspond to a proposition? Like very many philosophers, I take the position that a sentence can express a proposition, and that propositions are the meanings of a certain kind of sentence. But what kind of sentence? Since propositions are the objects of belief, only sentences that can be the objects of belief can be propositions. As we have said above, the only kind of sentence that can be believed is the kind of sentence that declares something about something, a declarative sentence. In our example, the sentence, Mexico City is the capital of Mexico, declares, about Mexico City, that it is the capital of Mexico. It is a declarative sentence, and its meaning is a proposition. So, the relationship between sentences and propositions is that declarative sentences express, i.e. have as their meaning, propositions. 
Earlier, I seemed to imply that the sentence, J.R.R. Tolkien wrote The Hobbit, was a proposition, since I called this kind of knowledge propositional knowledge. But this wasn't what I meant to convey. We call the kind of knowledge associated with declarative sentences, propositional knowledge, not because the sentence itself is a proposition, but because the sentence expresses, i.e. has as its meaning, a proposition. In fact, in everyday speech, we humans often refer to a sentence, such as the sentence, J.R. Tolkien wrote The Hobbit, and ask whether our interlocutor believes it. But this is just loose talk. When it is time to be more precise, such as in a philosophical exploration of the nature of knowledge, one should instead ask one's interlocutor whether they believe that which is expressed by the sentence, J.R.R. Tolkien wrote The Hobbit. After all, if my interlocutor speaks another language like Spanish but doesn't speak English, and I am speaking to her through an interpreter, she won't be able to believe that English sentence, since it will be meaningless to her. However, she might still believe that which the English sentence expresses. She might still believe the proposition that corresponds to that English sentence, a proposition which she would express using a Spanish sentence. So, as I have said, when we use the word know in such knowing that sentences, we call that type of knowledge, propositional knowledge, not because such knowing that sentences are propositions but because they express propositions. To sum up what we've just said about propositions, they are the objects of belief-related attitudes, the bearers of truth or falsity, and the meanings of declarative sentences. This, in fact, is the three-part definition of propositions subscribed to by many, though not all, philosophers. But these attributes of propositions imply that propositions are also the objects of knowledge. Since in our pursuit of an analysis of knowledge, we find ourselves listing conditions that include a belief condition, the object of the knowledge must be of the same type as the object of the belief. So it is only propositions that can be known. A sentence cannot be known, just as it cannot be believed. This makes sense of why we've already used the variable P standing for a proposition in our formula for the traditional analysis of knowledge, and why even before that, we called the type of knowledge this book is interested in propositional knowledge. We're exploring in this book series the kind of knowledge that is knowledge of propositions, in contrast with the other types of knowledge we discussed earlier, such as acquaintance knowledge and ability knowledge. Hopefully it now makes sense why, Going forward in this book series, whenever I talk about that which is believed or known I will speak only of propositions, not sentences. We've just explained the concept of a belief, as deployed in the belief condition of the tack, and clarified that that which is believed must be a proposition. We have said that propositions are the things that can be believed and known. Since this triggered our curiosity about these things called propositions, we have also clarified that they are the kinds of things that can be true or false, and that they are the meanings of declarative sentences. Now that we have explicated belief, the central concept of the first condition of the traditional analysis of knowledge and propositions, the kind of thing the tax says can be believed, we are ready to turn our attention to the central concept of the tax second condition, justification. 5.3 Justification the second condition of the traditional analysis of knowledge deploys the concept of justification. And we have already seen that this concept shall be central to the project of our book series as a whole, 
since the second key question about knowledge that this book seeks to answer is directly about justification. Here it is again. KQ2. Under what conditions does a person have good reason to believe something to be true? That is, under what conditions is a person justified in believing something to be true? As we'll see, developing a good answer to this question is at the very heart of understanding knowledge and how to acquire it. Answering it will not be quick or easy, but a good answer is worth the effort, since such an answer would be deeply empowering. Thus, after providing a strong and plausible analysis of knowledge in response to KQ1, the next major achievement of this book series will be a similarly strong and plausible theory of justification, which I will provide in book 2 of the series. For now, I will within book 1 present as a hypothesis the account of justification I will defend in book 2. This will be enough to enable us to complete book 1's project of answering KQ1, of providing a good analysis of knowledge. Luckily for us now, this account of justification happens to be quite intuitively appealing, so I hope it will not seem implausible and thus won't undermine the plausibility of the analysis of knowledge I will settle on here in Book 1. Let's start with a dictionary definition. The Oxford Dictionary states as the primary meaning of justify, to show or prove to be right or reasonable. It also provides of course other meanings for the word, including those related to law, morality, and Christian theology. But it provides the following origin for the word. Middle English in the senses administer justice to, and inflict a judicial penalty on, from Old French justifier, from Christian Latin justificare, do justice to, from Latin justice, see just. When we take their advice and look up the word just, we are given the following origin for that word. Late Middle English, via Old French from Latin justice, from Jews, law, right. When I try to explain all the different meanings of the word justification, I point to the English word right as the closest word that accounts for these different meanings. What changes is the standard of rightness that is being applied, be it a moral, legal, or theological standard. In this book series we are interested in knowledge-related justification, that is, epistemic justification, in philosopher speak. With regard to knowledge-related, i.e. epistemic, justification, the standard being applied is that of knowledge-building rightness. So, to provide a knowledge-related justification for believing a proposition is literally to show it to be right, with respect to practices that lead to knowledge. The ideal being pursued in knowledge-building is truth. The way we show something to be right with respect to knowledge-building imperatives is to provide reasons for believing it to be true. Now, as discussed, the kind of knowledge we're seeking to understand is knowledge of propositions, so the something that a knowledge-related justification seeks to show to be right is a proposition. All this means that to provide a knowledge-related justification, i.e. an epistemic justification, is to provide reasons for believing a proposition to be true. 5.3.15 points about justification. We've just stated that a justification in this context is the set of reasons for believing a proposition to be true. Philosophers have discussed justification for a long time, and to help us understand this concept I'll discuss five conclusions we can extract from philosophers' investigations. 1. Justification admits of degrees, justifications can be stronger or weaker, 
and knowledge requires a very strong justification. 2. Satisfying the justification condition does not imply satisfying the belief condition. One can have a strong justification for a proposition without believing the proposition. 3. The justification condition does not imply the truth condition. One can have a strong justification for a proposition and the proposition be false and 4. Being justified does not necessarily require being able to show to someone else that one is justified. 5. Justification for believing a given proposition, p, occurs within the context of a pursuit of knowledge concerning a particular question, and justification for believing p is but one of the three basic possible results of investigation into the question. Let's discuss each of these points about justification in turn. First of all, justification admits of degrees, just as belief does. For example, one can have a justification that tells one that the proposition has a two-thirds probability of being true. When you roll a regular six-sided die, the chances of it being less than five are two-thirds, since four out of six possibilities are less than five, and four sixths equals two-thirds. But usually the standard for knowledge is higher than this. With two-thirds odds we don't say that you know the roll will be less than five. But if instead, you knew the die was loaded, such that the chances of it being less than 5 were 99%, we'd likely say that on the first roll you knew it would be less than 5. We say that a very strong justification is required for knowledge. Second, it is possible to have a strong justification for a proposition without actually believing it. For example, Leonard has a very strong justification for believing that his car is about to run out of gas. The fuel indicator has been slowly dropping towards empty as he has continued on his long road trip. It is now a good distance below the empty mark. In fact, it is approximately in the same place at which the car sputtered out and stopped running the past three times during this trip so far occasions upon which he had to flag down other drivers to go bring him a can of gas to get him to the next gas station. But Leonard doesn't believe he's about to run out of gas because he feels very confident today. In fact, Leonard is bipolar, and right now he's in a manic phase, in which his confidence overrides his reasoning abilities. So he does not believe he is about to run out of gas, even though he has very good reason to believe that he will. Looking at Leonard's evidence, we can say that he has a strong justification for believing that his car is about to run out of gas, based on the evidence he has access to, even though he doesn't believe it. So justification does not imply belief, it is possible to be justified in believing something without actually believing it. Third, it is possible to have strong justification without the proposition being true. For example, Jasmine has very strong reason to believe she will see a full moon when she steps outside the door just now. Jasmine is a big fan of the moon, and she knows all its usual cycles, including its eclipses, and marks them on her calendar. She also knows from reliable weather reports that the sky is clear tonight. But when she steps outside she cannot see the moon. This is because the moon has just been pushed out of orbit by a giant alien spaceship and is currently only visible from the other side of the Earth, as it flies off toward the Sunday, the aliens had no moon on their home planet, and were jealous, you see. That makes sense. 
Jasmine had a very strong justification for believing the moon would be visible, but yet that proposition was in fact false. Justification without truth is possible. Fourth, having a good justification does not require being able to show that one is justified. Earlier, I explained the meaning of our kind of justification as being about showing a belief to be right, i.e. to be highly likely to be true. This showing to be right interpretation of the word justify does apply, but it applies to the reasons, to the justification, not necessarily to the person. The person doesn't have to be able to show it to be right, rather, the justification, the reasoning, has to show that it is right. For example, it is no doubt conceivable that a young child has a strong justification for believing that another child took her toy, she might have clearly seen the other child take it, and resisted that, without being able to articulate this justification to her father since she doesn't talk yet. Of course, in this scenario, her father might be unable to determine that his daughter is justified in believing the other child took the toy. But that does not preclude the possibility that his daughter actually is justified. All that is required is to show that it is possible, in a theoretical philosophical scenario, in which everything is examined by experts in determining justification, to provide a strong justification for the belief based on the daughter's evidence, e.g. her seeing and feeling the toy being taken. So being justified does not require being able to show to others that one is justified. Fifth and finally, a justification occurs in the context of pursuing knowledge concerning a question, and a justification in believing P is, but one of three basic possible results into such an inquiry. The context is the pursuit of the answer to a question concerning a given proposition P. When the justification condition of the tack is met, the subject is justified in believing the proposition P. But what happens when the subject's evidence points toward a different conclusion, e.g. that P is false or not P, to use the language of formal logic? What actually happens in everyday knowledge building is that we don't start out knowing whether our evidence will point toward P, away from P, or be inconclusive, pointing neither toward P nor toward the opposite of P. What is happening here is that we are pursuing a question. Philosophers sometimes say we're pursuing the question at hand, and we can adopt a nomenclature I've found for that that looks like this. Q, P, not P. This stands for the question, P or not P, that is, the question of whether P or its opposite is true. Of course, such a question can be correctly answered by saying the evidence is inconclusive, that one is neither justified in believing P nor in believing the opposite of P, and should thus suspend judgment on the question. So we see a justification occurs in the context of the pursuit of the answer to a question. 5.3.2 My Perspective on Justification So, we've clarified five points about knowledge-related, i.e. epistemic, justification. As I said, working out a complete theory of what it takes and means to be justified, in response to question KQ2, will be its own project that we'll tackle a bit later. Philosophers' theories about justification can be grouped into different perspectives on the matter. Anyone familiar with this conversation may have noticed that I've thus far already been assuming that one of these perspectives is correct. In fact, I'll be assuming this perspective to be correct throughout our pursuit of an analysis of knowledge, our response to question KQ1. 
Let me take a moment to shine a light on the perspective I'm assuming to be correct for now. The perspective on justification I'm presuming for now falls into the family called evidentialism and the more particular category within it called foundationalism. Later, when we're addressing question KQ2 on justification, I'll properly defend this perspective, providing a complete theory of justification. But for now, I'm not afraid to presume this, as this is probably the most intuitive kind of perspective on justification. Evidentialism takes the position that what makes a subject person justified in believing something to be true can only come from the evidence that is internally available or accessible to that subject person. When we ask a person for reasons for a belief on the basis of their evidence, on complex matters, like reasoning about who committed a murder, we often find that the reasoning takes multiple steps, multiple beliefs connected to each other by inferences, forming a chain of evidence. Here is an example of a possible chain of evidence a lawyer might present. Leslie and Sam both had motive to kill Bill. They are the only two owners of the kind of rare gun whose bullets were found in Bill's body. Leslie was shown on video at a party at the time of the murder but Sam has no alibi, therefore, Sam is the murderer. One or more beliefs can be based on previous beliefs. But for every subsequent, more fundamental belief in the chain of evidence, we could ask how that belief is justified, we could ask why should I believe that to be true? But can this series of questioning go on forever? Can anyone hold an infinitely long chain of evidence in their head, or recite it? If not, there must be basic beliefs. If we expect these basic beliefs to be justified themselves, then they must not be justified on the basis of any previous beliefs, there must be what philosophers call justified basic beliefs. Justified basic beliefs would thus form the foundation upon which a justification is built. Theories of justification that take this position are called foundationalist theories. Of course, this invites the question, if justified basic beliefs are not justified on the basis of any previous beliefs, then how do they receive their justification? This question has proven difficult to answer. As I've said, I promise to provide you with a strong, plausible answer to that question when we get to addressing KQ2. For now, just know that throughout the current discussion I am assuming a foundationalist, and thus evidentialist position on justification. That is why, when discussing how a person, the subject person in our formulas like the one for the tack, is justified in believing a proposition to be true, I appeal to the evidence accessible to that person. We've clarified justification enough for now, with the four points about it covered, and with my note about the foundationalist and thus evidentialist approach I am for now presuming to be correct. Now we're ready to address the central concept of the third and final condition of the traditional analysis of knowledge, namely, truth. And that completes our episode's reading from my 2019 book, Knowledge by Acceptance, Second Edition. I hope you found it interesting. For more information, including links to Amazon, from which you can buy the ebook or the paperback, see my website, jamescraft.org, and that's graph spelled G-R-A-F. All the best.